What's going on, guys? Welcome to episode 21 of the Data-Driven Strength Podcast. Today, we're excited to kind of kick off a new series that we're going to be running on the podcast here. Um, Josh has written a new article, so we're going to kind of use this podcast as an opportunity to briefly discuss the article, but also have some conversation uh, to talk about some of the more in-depth concepts of the article and pass it around between us and have some conversation. Um, so without further ado there, I'm going to kick it over to Josh to kind of give us an intro to the topic and, and briefly kick through the article before we get to our discussion. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll start by discussing the rationale of this article, kind of from a practical perspective in a way, and then I'll give a brief overview of the article itself, and then I'll, I'll, I'll open the floor to Zach and Jake so that they can uh, ask any questions or bring up any talking points related to the article itself. Um, so basically what the article discusses is additional considerations for RAR accuracy, right? So when you're in the gym and you call a, you call a set RP eight, you're, 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 you're claiming that you had two reps in reserve and RAR accuracy is okay. How accurate was that rating actually? And Jake is probably the, the most knowledgeable here on, on, on RAR accuracy in general. Um, you know, there, there's some research looking at things like exercise selection and how that influences RAR rating accuracy, uh, how close to failure, how close to failure you are, the number of reps per set, things like that. Right. So, so the, the general rationale for caring about RER accuracy, the, the kind of starting point in that logic train is that proximity to failure matters. Um, if you listen to episode 19 of the podcast, we talked about proximity to failure and how, although it doesn't seem to make or break training gains in the sense that failure doesn't seem to be magic and non-failure also doesn't seem to be magic. Um, it kind of influences all the other training variables in a way. So the point is, is that proximity to failure is worth manipulating or worth caring about to some degree. Okay. Um, so, so by extension, we want to make sure that the, the RARs we're claiming in practice are accurate. Okay. So again, the, the point of this article is to discuss additional considerations, uh, of RAR accuracy. So with that, I'll kind of go into, uh, a brief overview of the article itself. So I start by talking about what I call overlooked factors influencing performance. Um, and then I'll tie that back into RIR accuracy in a minute. So the three, the, the first factor uh, of the three is music. So th this literature is pretty straightforward. Um, there's a good amount of evidence indicating that, hey, if you take sets to failure while listening to your preferred music, um, either before or during the set, you can generally do more reps to failure. Okay. Um, the next is... Uh, presence of spotters. So there's a, there's a study indicating that when you think somebody is spotting you, you actually perform, can perform more reps to failure. The last factor is mental fatigue. Now this is, is definitely a very complicated factor. Um, and, and it's definitely not an in-depth review of mental fatigue, but, um, mental fatigue is another factor. So, so if you successfully induce high mental fatigue, it doesn't really matter how you're inducing mental fatigue, but the fact that you did induce mental fatigue can decrease the number of reps to, to failure in subjects. Um, so this is interesting, right? Because music presence of spotters, mental fatigue, right? Presumably there's no apparent impact on muscle physiology, right? If you're doing, if you're bench pressing, these factors aren't actually influencing what's going on at the level of the muscle or uh, at the level of the muscles, right? The, the pecs, the shoulders and the triceps in this case. So it's like, okay, 
these subjects are going to failure. There's no influence on the muscle. So what's actually going on here? And I make the case that those three factors are directly influencing potentially the subject's perception of effort. And that perception of effort is influencing when they're terminating their sets. Okay. So this leads us into what is called the psychobiological model of performance. So this is something that most of the research has been done in the endurance literature. Um, but it is, you know, through some of these mental fatigue studies is starting to kind of surface in the resistance training literature. And basically it just says that, Hey, when you're doing an extended task, your, your ability to perform. And, and in this case, when you're performing sets to failure, when you, when you quote unquote fail, that is ultimately once you reach a given level of effort at which you decide this is failure, right? I'm not going anymore. So, right. If, if we go back to that idea that, um, the muscle itself is not actually influenced, but perception of effort is if the, these factors are influencing perception of effort, right. Ultimately decreasing the point at which you terminate the set. So that's, that's kind of the, the rationale I'm, I'm proposing here for these studies. Um, so I go through the psychobiological model and its potential, uh, relevance in resistance training and talk about some studies on modulation of effort. Um, I'm not going to go through those in depth here, but basically just some interesting stuff on like, even if you're being yelled at by a researcher to go as hard as possible, that's not always the case. There, there's some subconscious or, or potentially conscious things going on. there, actually influencing how much effort you're willing to put forth. So again, point being is even if you think you're going all out, that might be influenced by other factors. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into that uh, in a little bit more depth. I'll, I'll skip over the direct practical applications right now. I'm sure we'll discuss, that'll probably be the focus of our discussion. Um, we'll, we'll of course touch on those at some point, but uh, Zach and Jake, I'll kick it over to you guys. Let me know what questions you have, if anything was unclear during that uh, initial uh, overview of the article, and then we can uh, go from there. So I'm going to just quickly summarize more so in a, so with a question mark at the end to make sure I'm tracking. Uh, and so I'm just kind of summarizing what you said, and then we can kind of dive deeper. Um, so pretty much what Josh said, if I'm understanding correctly, and Josh, again, correct me if I'm wrong, RER accuracy seems to matter for these training related adaptations. And, you know, just the straightforward uh, issues with, with RER accuracy that we've kind of talked about in a lot of places, um, you know, high rep sets farther from failure. Those are kind of the tangible programming things that make a set um, less accurate in terms of rating the RER. But additionally, there's all these other factors to consider as well when can kind of constructing the overall training environment that are going to allow someone to be accurate at, at gauging, um, you know, the actual point to failure or maybe proximities thereof. So is that a pretty accurate uh, description, Josh? Yeah, I think that that's a good representation. Cool. So my kind of first question I have for you is, you know, you, you do a good job painting kind of the, all of the environmental factors that impact um, this in, in a training context. But one question I had is, do you think there is any kind of advantages to creating a environment that is, you know, high arousal or maybe highly inducing of a lot of the things that are going to impact this. So things that come to mind, like very aggressive, but preferably um, music that you enjoy, 
um, you know, a really high arousal, high hype environment, um, all those kind of things, really aggressive encouragement from training partners and or spotters. Do you think based on what you've seen in this research that that is a advantageous factor? Do you think that's, you know, it's obviously going to be individual to some degree, but on average, do you think that's going to be something we should look to look to do? Obviously, the case you make in the articles, you want it to be standardized, but do you think we should try to standardize our training environment at kind of one of these higher levels of arousal? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start um, for this discussion. So I'll, I'll briefly go over kind of the practical application point I mentioned in the article. So basically what I said is, okay, so because you now have this awareness of the these, these, these factors that are not directly related to muscle physiology influencing performance, um, that, that awareness can allow you to kind of standardize your training, right? And, and that's ultimately what I recommend in the article is like, hey, if you're always training with high hype music or like, you know, super loud music, really upbeat, and then some training sessions you're listening to a podcast, right? Those are going to be different environments, which may influence your perception of effort and ultimately RER accuracy. Um, so to answer your question, I don't, I don't know if I have a strong opinion on that. I don't think you should be sleepwalking through your training. Um, I would also add that I think this is going to be very individual. Actually, I know you mentioned some degree of individualization, but I think this is actually going to be very individual. So Zach, for example, when we train together, you don't seem to really be bothered by the type of music being played or how loud it is. Like that doesn't really seem to matter to you. For me, I'm kind of particular about what I want to be listening to when I want to perform well on a set. So I think that's an example of, you know, for me, if the goal of a set is to maximize peak intensity and by extension, the RAR accuracy, right, for, for that given time period is going to influence the peak intensity directly, I think that's a case where you don't want to be sleepwalking through training. Um, again, there, there really is no time you want to be sleepwalking through training, but I think you get my point. Um, so in general, I would focus on standardization. And this is something I, I just think standardization in general, when individualizing training is important. So another example of this is the amount of volume you're accruing during warmups. So like, I don't think there's a, a right way or a wrong way to warm up for a lot of stuff. Now, on, on certain ends of, of, you know, the extremes, there's going to be right, uh, you know, good and bad things to do. But you know, if, if you're being pretty consistent with how you're warming up to a top set or, or to whatever protocol it may be, you know, that we can individualize from there once it's standardized. So I, th I, I think of this in a similar vein, right? Like if your general state of arousal is constant, then you can contextualize the progress and, and, and be pretty confident that, Hey, this, this positive trend or this lack thereof uh, or, or, or lack thereof positive trend in training performance is actually accurate. Um, so I don't know if I just completely dodged the question, but I don't think I have a strong opinion one way or the other. I definitely, I, I definitely don't think you should purposefully decrease your arousal, if anything. I have one sort of related question to that also, Josh, and that's like, you know, we talk about if we're trying to standardize things as much as possible. Right with let's say with the music choice since that's kind of the example that we're running with right now what do we think about for somebody who wants to compete and when you get on the platform you can't choose the music you can't you know you, you don't have control over that right so is, is it then advantageous to maybe expose yourself 
to these different environments so that when it comes to meat day, it's not shocking and throws you off. I don't yeah. know how I feel about that personally. I think there's an argument both ways, um, but interested to hear what you guys think. I feel like this is really similar to Josh. We've had this conversation a few times about um, always doing uh, the exercises in the competition order or having a, a, de- a day where the deadlift is first. I think it's really similar to that. Whereas like my, my initial gut reaction is like, if I can make 90% of my training sessions more productive by listening to music that I prefer potentially in my, you know, the area under the curve in, in terms of training performance is considerably higher. I would probably take that bet, even though it's going to be somewhat less specific in quotes to, to competition day. But again, I didn't write the article. What do you think, Josh? I agree with you, Zach, um, because the same argument can be made about why would you ever do deadlift first in a session? And, and Zach, I think that's a perfect example. And I often explain this to clients is like, there's pretty good evidence that exercise order is going to, you know, by, by having a session or two in the week where deadlift is first. Yes, it's less quote unquote specific, but your strength gains over a given time period are probably going to be greater. You just have to be smart with attempt selection if you if it is going after squat. And like Zach said, having at least a couple exposures to that order at some point in the week or like, for example, early in the the, the week of 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 the meet, you can do like your openers in that that order and you, you get some feel for it. I personally haven't had any issues with that. So I think this is, is another example of that and, and probably something I should think more about when, when working with, uh, when working with clients, I think that's a good point, Jake. Um, another thought I had with that question, Jake, is when I was writing this and I was talking about standardizing your training, I was very, I was very sure to add the phrase the best you can. Cause I don't, I think there's definitely a point where it becomes like, too neurotic to the point where, you know, it, the juice isn't worth the squeeze um, and, and probably will have a downside to the point where you, you just have no ability to like adapt to different training contexts. So um, I definitely think there's something to being, being adaptable one way or the other. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point in the sense, like I almost think of it as like burnout, right? Like um, you listen to the same music every time you deadlift, eventually that music doesn't hype you up anymore. It's just normal but it's standardized. So I almost think about standardizing the emotional, psychological environment of the training rather than like the exact, because then it's like, well, you better listen to the exact same song at the exact same point. Yeah. You can take this way too far. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. When my right foot goes under the bar, the beat drops every time. Sure. Has to be that way. I can't sign up for 11 a.m. classes because that's when, that's when meets are. I got to train at that time. Right. Well, (laughs) Um, with that, what do you what do you guys think about because I thought about some of the music literature too and it's like I feel like there has to be a layer to it beyond just what you prefer because I'm like I think about just myself as an example right like I like a very wide range of music sometimes I listen to super chill like old school 80s British pop music and then other times it's like deathcore like crazy you know what I mean like different it's just different so I love the cure but I'm not going to listen to the cure while I'm lifting. It's just, it's not going to hype me up. You know what I mean? So I wonder what those other aspects of the music are that really get that emotional response. Yeah. I think if, if I were to imagine how the, so if I take my understanding of how they go through the process of selecting the preferred music for each subject, 
And if I were to imagine that process, I would assume they're thinking within the context of lifting. It's not just like, hey, which of these do you prefer? I think it's under the context. I, I could be wrong about that, but that would be my assumption. Um, yeah, that that's my two cents on that is it probably is lifting specific. Um, but I don't know, man. I agree with you because sometimes like near the end of the session, I want to listen to something a little bit more chill. And I don't know if it, I don't think it's negatively influencing my performance. It's It's almost like matching my my cognitive context, if I'm just a little bit, you know, less, you know, I, I, I have a good amount of sets of accessories to get through. I don't know if I want like super upbeat music that whole time. So right. and sometimes like, sometimes I want something heavy. Other times I just want to have something that's like dancey and fun. And like, like my girlfriend's super into like techno and house and all this stuff. Right. So sometimes I'll listen to some of that stuff. Cause it's just fun. I'm in a good mood. And I feel like when I'm having fun, I lift better at least on like accessory stuff. So I don't know. I just, I feel like it's so, uh, I'm interested in more research being done on the music stuff because I feel like there's a lot of layers to it that they just haven't scratched yet. I honestly, I don't want to get too far into the music literature because I really just view it as a proof of concept. And, and, Mm -hmm. and if we go back to my initial overview of the article, I don't know how, how clear I was of this, but the, 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 really the, the crux of this literature is the fact that failure is not super well defined and that's ultimately what may be influencing how many reps they can perform so if i if i pull up the exact verbiage here uh, in those music studies failure was defined as when the barbell was moving in the downward direction during the concentric phase or when participants verbally terminated the set so that latter option means they could have racked the bar and said that's it. I'm terminating the set. I don't think I have any more left, but they're really, that's just perception of effort terminating the set. It may not be their objective performance capabilities, right? So which will ultimately decrease the number of reps performed because of that modulation of perception of effort. So yeah, the music stuff is interesting, but I I really see it as a, as a proof of concept more than anything. Going, going back to that example. Another thing I wrote down was I feel and I'd be curious to hear what you guys think. I feel like this is probably a, another significant point in the velocity column. Um, now, does a lot of these factors impact a velocity relationship? I have no idea. But um, if, if there's all of these variables aside from just repetition range and proximity to failure that impact our, our accuracy, you know, throw that, throw all those in the mix as well. Like, I feel like even though we have some literature to suggest it's fairly accurate, pretty close to failure. If, if you're, you know, even three reps in reserve, I'm, I'm still, you know, a little bit shaky if people are able to, to, to uh, gauge that fairly accurately. And then you throw on, you know, some of these other factors, maybe they're in the commercial gym, forgot their headphones, can't listen to their preferred music. Uh, maybe they had a really stressful day at school or work. So they're in a high uh, state of cognitive uh, impairment or mental fatigue. You know, you start layering on those things like to me that that seems like a pretty major point in the velocity column that you can just kind of just lock into the set. I'm um, going until this thing beeps. And, and that's that's my uh, that's my mission. Um, do you guys agree with that? Yeah. So when I was originally writing the practical application section, I was considering that. But I don't know if we have the evidence to say that holds true. If I were to make a bet, I think it would be a good practical application of it. I, I personally use, I personally like 
to use velocity when I suspect that perception of effort is off. So specifically, what I'm thinking about here is when I haven't touched anything super heavy in a while, and I can actually look at my velocities, and something will feel slow, but then the velocity is actually faster than I think. Okay, this is a perception of effort thing. I have more in the tank than I actually think. So my anecdote and just my my hunch would, would say that, yes, I agree with you, Zach. But I don't know if we have a, enough evidence to say that velocity is also you know, velocity is also going to, you know, kind of rectify these issues with perception of effort. Because, you know, that's part of the reason I included the section on modulation of effort, right? They they looked at um, force output during uh, isometric bicep contractions, and they were actually decreased, yeah. right, even though they were supposed to be maximal, which would influence velocity if it was a dynamic contraction. Exact same. Yeah, if you just stop trying to put maximum intent into a rep right. that's going to slow velocity regardless of uh, actual muscular fatigue. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So I, I, but then if you go to the for the, I think it's Fortez is how you pronounce the author's last name of one of the studies on mental fatigue that I, that I wrote about um, basically both conditions with or without mental fatigue. Um, they use 70% of their one rep max and stopped once they hit 20% velocity loss, which is, which is far from failure, um, or at least pretty far from failure um, on squat and bench. And there was no difference in mean, mean velocity across those sets, right? So that, that's a case where that is kind of evidence for velocity being useful in terms of, you know, giving you an objective marker of performance. But then we also have this evidence, um, where in those bicep contractions that might indicate that velocity wouldn't be a great, you know, solution to this issue. So it's hard, it's, it's hard to say. And that's why I kind of left it out of the practical application. Cause I, I just need, I would need to see more, uh, more evidence on that. Hey, that's a great study design. Actually take, take the same subjects, have them come to the lab twice. One time they come to the lab, have mental fatigue, have them train to failure. Second time they come to the lab, uh, no mental fatigue, have them train to failure and look at their last rep velocities and see if they're different, right? See if they can actually get to the same point of, of you know, true exertion of, of grinding through reps. Yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting idea. Um, I, I, I wish we had more work in general on velocity. It's just such a, with all the proximity to failure stuff that we talk about, it just be, would be such an advantageous thing to have in more studies. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to that being a kind of standard practice. The other thing I wrote down was kind of getting, getting back to this is just, you know, taking a step back and looking at all these issues that come up with RER accuracy. It seems to me that, you know, we, we often talk about, you know, the potential applications of training farther from failure, but at the end of the day, I still feel that, this is another reason why the kind of standard recommendations exist and why taking sets pretty close to failure is usually a safe bet and probably more foolproof. Um, just because there are so many issues with gauging RER, let alone just, just the pure tangible ability to do so from like a programming or training concept, uh, training, uh, concept ability, um, that yeah, take just when in doubt train close to failure. And I think that's going to help cover up some of these issues as well in terms of, Am I five or four RER? I don't really know. When in doubt, take it to the house. So, so I think that's an interesting discussion because you're almost writing 
you're almost giving the recommendations with the understanding that people could be off with their RER accuracy because they're probably going to be further from failure than they think because of those those factors that are, are, are pretty well known at this point, right? Like exercise selection, influencing it, how close you are to failure, um, number of sets, those kind of things. But also some of these things I'm proposing, mental fatigue might influence RER accuracy, the, the general social context, the general environment you're in, right? All this stuff is going to influence RER accuracy. And it's generally going to make, make you think you're closer to failure than you are. So what, what you're saying, Zach, is, hey, we should just recommend closer to failure because if people are going to mess this up, they're going to accidentally be further from failure. And we don't want them to be too far from failure because there's obviously some sort of point where, where, where you are training too far from failure. Um, I just, I struggle with that because I, I would rather make a push in, in the, the community, if you will, that we need to get our RERs accuracy better. And then let, let's focus on getting our RERs as accurate as possible. And then we can discuss what RERs are best from an objective, how many reps in the tank you have. I think that's more, I think that's, that's a, a more productive conversation I want to be a part of, right? Like, Again, don't don't get me wrong. I think it's fine to recommend, hey, one one to four reps from failure, because that might leave people anywhere from one to to seven reps from failure, and that's still going to be productive, right? But I I would rather focus on, hey, let's be aware of these things, and let's make sure our RERs are more accurate, and then we can discuss the kind of the threshold, if you will, of 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 when we're too far from failure. That that's my two cents. Um. And maybe this article is a very small uh, step in that that direction. Yeah, I guess to me, the main thing that presupposes is that's possible. Um, and I don't know. I just, I just struggle with that. We've all been training for a really long time, and I'm still pretty not super confident. If you ask me to rate three RAR to hit it on the nose in, in a moderate to high rep set, um, that's, I mean, I, I agree with you in a perfect world, the, the words – and the recommendations that we give are literal and, and be able to, to communicate and have conversations in that way. But, you know, when the rubber hits the road and people actually have to train, um, I, th- I do think it's difficult because I don't know if that's ever going to be reasonable um, to have somebody rate a legit five RAR consistently. You'll probably be able to get better at it over time for sure. And the margin of error is going to decrease. Jake's probably the best person to, to ask about that. But I don't know. I, I, I get skeptical that I'd be able to hit that on the nose. Um, and, and again, then the con the conversation becomes, is that totally necessary? And I don't think so in all contexts for sure. I think that's why, you know, prescribing load with percentage of one RM, making sure it's heavy enough to where the proximity to failure becomes a little bit less, uh, relevant because you're already close enough of failure from rep one as a, is a kind of a useful way of uh, doing things. But when you are using those loads that, you know, at a current, current point in time, I feel like that's a little bit more of a relevant problem. I do think that having that, that tool in your tool belt to just, you know, when in doubt train closer to failure, I think is probably something you want to at least acknowledge. Um, just because I, I, to, at this point, I'm not super confident, even with a, a lot of training status that people can get repeatedly accurate with those higher RERs, especially with moderate to, to high rep sets. But I'm curious to Jake hear, hear your opinion on that for sure. I, I tend to sort of agree with you, Zach, in, in the sense of like how, how practically 
at least for some people, right? I think it, it depends on the person for sure. If it's somebody who um, I think a, a good portion of our audience are people who really value data and standardization and minimizing noise and all those sorts of things, right? So for those people, um, I think it makes a lot of sense, like Josh, what you're saying about let's really push for understanding all these factors and get as accurate as we can and, and that sort of thing. I also feel like there's a, maybe, and maybe this, this isn't a very scientific argument, right? But I think that there is a point of, there's a point in time where the more we try to standardize things, the more vanilla and not fun training becomes. And uh, that's something I always try to stress, like with all my athletes and everybody is like, guys, like we got to have fun when we're in the gym. And I think reducing the noise as much as possible, of course, but like, if we need to go in there, it's always the same music. We always have the same spotters. You can't look at your phone between sets. We got to time our rest periods, you know, all this stuff. It's like, at what point do we just not enjoy training anymore? And I think that there is a, at least the environment that I came from, from training, it's like, it's really, it's fun to just get your friends together and you're all yelling at each other and blasting music and hitting PRs, right? It's just fun. Uh, you can't do that all the time because you'll kind of burn out, but I don't know. I, I feel like there's a, we want to, it's sort of like, let's do the best we can, but not so much that it takes away from just getting after it and having fun. That makes sense. I like the phrase optimize within the constraints. That's like, that's like my favorite yeah. phrase. I think that was uh, Brian Whitaker on the Iron Culture podcast talked about that. Um, that's like, that's like my favorite phrase. Like once you have these constraints of like, okay, this person wants to be training for the long haul. And the number one thing uh, to be able to do that is enjoyment and adherence. So we have to make sure training is configured in a way and there's enough flexibility that they can continue to enjoy it, like you said, Jake. And then from there, it's just optimizing within the constraints. There's probably a level of standardization that's going to be helpful to evaluate our outcomes, but you don't want to get so crippled by that, just like anything else, to to you know bake this optimal pie, even though you don't even like the taste of it. Um, I think that's kind of something to be aware of. Jake, I'm glad you're here because like, I totally agree with you and we're probably just pointing out things and some people could take it too far in the sense of, okay, we need a time rest periods. We need to listen to the same album every single, right? Like that's definitely not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And I think perhaps an analogy and, and I think bringing up rest periods is another good example. I don't necessarily ask my clients to uh, measure or uh, record rest periods or anything like that. It's just like an, an analogy with rest periods is you're not going to take a 30 second rest between sets on, on, you know, sets pretty close to failure on squats. You're also not going to take a 15 minute rest. Same idea with, with the music stuff. If, if you're trying to generally get an idea of how things are trending, you're not going to, if, if you usually listen to super loud music that, that really increases your arousal you're not going to go to the other end of the spectrum, you know, uh, at, at another week. I think it's just kind of like being aware of these factors. And, and again, I, I don't want to focus on music too much because that really was just a proof of concept related to perception of effort influencing RIR rating accuracy. So um, anyway, I, I totally agree with you, Jack, Jake, and I, I agree that, um, you know, th this is definitely not saying you need to go be a robot in the gym. That, that doesn't sound fun at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to be the uh, the bro voice of reason. Yeah, man. Unless you guys have any additional questions, we can briefly run through 
the practical applications just to really emphasize those. Um, cool. So we'll start with um, we'll start with the first app uh, practical application I listed. So there's three, um, and that's just that these concepts can be incorporated in discussions related to proximity to failure uh, and their recommendations for strength and hypertrophy. So again, we we often talk about hey, there's probably utility of training further from failure. It's not an option that should be taken off the table, and and that that does get some pushback. But we like to add the caveat that when we say four to six RIR can work, we're talking about four to six RIR when you're not, you know, when it's a true zero RIR, when you're actually performing to, to, to true failures is kind of your anchor point. Um, and, and I have the just general example in the article that a lot of higher rep sets in practice are reported as one to three RIR, maybe more like four to six RIR, right? So that's just an example of, what we're talking about actually happens a good amount anyway. So that's the first practical application. The second we kind of touched on before is that awareness of these factors could have a positive effect. Again, this gets to standardizing your training a good amount. Um, and just, again, I think a good way to think about it is, is don't sway too far one way or the other and, and don't go back and forth session to session or week to week. Um, and also if you do, right, like for whatever reason, like, I, like, just contextualize your progress a little bit, right? So like, if you know you were in a new gym with like your buddies and you were really excited to train, your perception of effort might be artificially deflated, right? Allowing you to, to hit a heavier load for, for a given protocol, right? So just kind of contextualize your progress in general. Um, I always like when, when an athlete like kind of gives me some context on a, a set and, and, and how it went. So I'm like, oh, okay. When I, when I look at your training log and I see that, that set recorded, I kind of know why that was higher than I'd expect or, or, or lower than I'd expect. The last practical application is that in general, lower rep ranges should be biased if the goal is RER accuracy. So again, a lot of this psychobiological discussion is, you know, the, the primary evidence is endurance is in the endurance literature. Um, but with some of these studies I, I cited, I think this is a proof of concept that these, these concepts can apply to especially higher rep sets. And there's probably a spectrum at which perception of effort influences uh, RER rating accuracy, you know, as, as set duration increases. So if you want to make sure that your, your RER ratings are as accurate as possible, take those sets of, of 15 to 20 you're doing and do sets of 8 to 12, for example. Now, is that always necessary? Like, we're, we're not saying you have to do that for the sake of, because that, that's a more effective, but instead, if, if you want to ensure RER accuracy, that is the way you should lean. Um, so yeah, any questions or thoughts on that, Jake or Zach? Um, I think that's really, I think those are great. First of all, I think that's really comprehensive and it's, it's the way that you went through those is almost sort of like a recap of a lot of things we've talked about here so far. Um, and it makes me think of sort of, especially like the second one, where um, just thinking about like what things are going to be artificially changing your perception of effort. It's sort of, I, I, I've been thinking about this this whole time, right? And, and sort of like, are we really just trying to minimize distractions within the training session? So I think about these sort of like the three main things you wrote about earlier, which were music, if it's something that you don't like, 
you're spending the whole time like what are we listening to it's always like the weird you know i go to la fitness sometimes and they're playing britney spears on the on the speakers i'm like what is this and then um there's music spotters right if you don't have a spotter sometimes you're distracted what happens if i get pinned under this bench you know what i mean you just get kind of worried or the mental fatigue stuff it's like are we just distracted looking at you know whatever cooking videos or something right everyone learned how to cook these past couple of years um whereas like maybe if you're watching a video of you know whatever high level ipf lifter hitting a heavy squat before you squat maybe you feel more in the zone and whatever so it's like i almost think about are we just trying to avoid being distracted and then i connect that to some of the uh like pre-workout nutrition stuff like the bin harudin study from a couple of years ago that was looking at um carbs pre-workout and it really i think a general takeaway from that study was like basically as long as you're not hungry the calories you eat right before you train don't seem to really be what's fueling you so it's like we're just trying to not be distracted and and not in the moment right so what do you guys think about that do you think that that's like a reasonable way to kind of con like conceptualize this as a whole in the sense of as long as we're not super distracted maybe we don't have to get super crazy ocd about these things but still like just get them in that sweet spot where we're still focused and in the moment and not having our mind wander throughout the session so from a practical perspective i think that checks out to me because i know like i think staying on task during your training sessions is very important like don't get me wrong if if, if you're socializing in the gym like and and I think it's fine, but just for me personally, I just like to be focused on the task and that, that seems to help my performance. Um, but if I recall correctly from one of the discussions from one of the music studies, a, a mechanism they proposed for why the presence of music. So I think this was on one of the studies on where they looked at the presence of music versus no music and that influence on, on repetition performance. And I think the the one of the proposed mechanisms for why the presence of music would would increase repetitions to failure is that it is a distraction while you are experiencing discomfort so that's so like maybe from a mental fatigue standpoint jake like going into the set if you were less distract less distracted prior to the set you're 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 you have lower levels of mental fatigue and you can get closer to your true objective performance capabilities. But if you're late in a set of 15 to one rep in a reserve, and you're only thinking about how bad that burns, you might want to strategically distract yourself. So you're not, you know, just waiting to, oh, am I to one RIR yet? Like just always thinking about how much it hurts. I think I have a bridge to that. I think what both of you guys are saying is that I think what you're trying to distract yourself from, if you're talking about performance, is internal focus. And what you're trying to draw your attention to is external focus on the task. I think you're right. So I think it's the bridge between those two things in the sense that when Jake, when you're saying avoid distractions and, and have focus, I think what you're trying to do is align the external environment and internal factors to make sure that I can focus as much as possible on this squat set, how I'm squatting and, and maximizing the way, the way I'm doing so efficiency wise or the weight on the bar or whatever the, the metric is and not allowing that external environment to be too, 
solely be focused on the discomfort associated with that activity. So maybe having uh, music that you enjoy, like you said, Jake, I, I don't think that dancey comment was something to just toss aside. I actually think that's something I very strongly align with, like, um, like in sports and stuff, like in warmups, like when the music is something that you enjoy, like you just, your movements feel more fluid and like, you just, I don't know how to explain it really, but like your, your motor tasks just feel correct and, and right and efficient. And I think that goes along with, with this in my experience is like when you're listening to something, um, that you enjoy, like the way that you're squatting just feels crisper, you're hitting the bounce, right. And you just, you feel more connected to the, to the activity in my experience. And you're not thinking about, like Josh said, man, my quads are really burning on this 10th rep. You're like, okay, I got to keep my, my knees forward on this squat. And, you know, like I said, the, the music is making you feel good about your, your ability to complete that task. So that's what I, when I hear you guys go back and forth on that, I think that's what is the aligning factor in my head is that to practically apply these ideas in a single sentence is that you are trying to align your external environment to maximize your external focus on the task and minimize the internal uh, internal functions going on that are trying to impede your ability to, to do so. Yeah, the only caveat I can think of or potential rebuttal there is is we do have I think I think a lot of people like to make the claim that like focusing on the mind muscle connection is like we have super good evidence that that's going to improve your hypertrophy outcomes. Jake, you probably know this literature better than me, but we do have some degree of indication that that could be beneficial. I know, I know the one really strong rebuttal to that that I've heard is that the the primary Schoenfeld study that's talked about is that the way that it's described sounds like they could have manipulated the mechanics of the exercise, so to which it's no longer comparing apples to apples. So like, I I I was it been, the, been a it long was the time biceps since I've that. They saw yeah, it was the biceps where they saw great. Yeah, it's about right? biceps. Yes, but the leg and extension not the, didn't. Not the leg extension did not, and which that, is a fixed that exercise. That you're kind of locked in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the, I, go for it, Jake. Good. You finish. Finish your thought. So, yeah. So I was just going to say, I think that's the the common critique there is that if you were being a really strict interpreter of that, like the external the external thing going on there is not the same. So it's maybe not a comparison that we can actually make to say that that's the case. Whereas if it was, the quads should have seen something as well. But that's I, it's been a long time since I've read that study. So, yeah. Can I have a, a very quick mini rant on the mind muscle connection research? We're never going to have good research on mind muscle connection ever, because it is a as somebody who's been trying, it, it takes a long time to learn how to have a good mind muscle connection, especially on some movements and others. Like. The only way to do it would be to have, you have to compare somebody who's using a mind-muscle connection versus a group who's not, right? Or even the same, even like a within subjects model may be better. If somebody is really, really good at using the mind-muscle connection, it's so ingrained and instinctual, you can't, you can't just not do it really anymore, right? Like it, it's just, it's really difficult to separate that out. But then if you have people who are less experienced as subjects, they probably can't do a very good job of using the mind muscle connection. So it's like, we're stuck in this weird, um, we can't use super advanced bodybuilders cause they're just not going to volunteer to be research subjects, but using these less experienced people, I just don't have much confidence that they actually know how to do it. And that's not a negative. Like I'm not taking a shot at them. It's just like, it's a skill like anything else. Once you get connected, you just can't be unconnected. That's right. Like exactly. 
it's just like every every muscle action you do you just know exactly what muscle what motor units you're firing Dude, this so and here's another example like literally just last night i was just screwing around in in the <laughs> in my bedroom just trying to stretch my hamstrings because i'm super sore i didn't train for like two weeks and i whatever i'm super sore right so i'm just messing around stretching and i felt my glutes in like a hip hinge motion for the first time in my life and i'm like wow this is this is the mind muscle connection with the glutes in a hip hinge and it's taken me what how many years to feel that like it's just it can take a it can take years you know what i mean so it's I don't know. Sounds, sounds like you have a study design protocol right there. Just get their hamstrings wicked sore so that they have yeah. no option but to feel the glutes in the in the hip I, hinge. And then once you're connected, you can't be unconnected. And then my muscle connection. For sure. All right. I, th- I think we're good to wrap up there, guys. Any uh, final thoughts or you're good to go? Cool. Thank you for making it to the end of episode 21. Uh, and I hope you enjoyed the article. If you have any comments or questions related to this podcast or the article itself, you can drop those at the bottom of the article and uh, we'll get back to you. Thanks for listening. Bye.